If you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you know that we have been exploring together the concept of foundations, uh, not the brick and mortar kind, but actually the, foundation, the foundations upon which we build our lives. And more specifically, as followers of Jesus Christ, the foundations of our faith that we affirm and seek to live into in all of their fullness. So if you are already a follower of Christ, hopefully this has been a great series just to continue to reaffirm what we understand and build our lives upon it. But even if you are not a follower of Christ, it's been our hope that this will be a series that you can come with some of those questions we were just talking about and that you would feel free to explore each one of these topics and as you're understanding them more as we're talking about them, that might bring some clarity for you in your own faith journey and what that looks like. As we've been doing this, you might remember we've been exploring just some really tiny little topics uh, together. So you might remember at the start of this series, Pastor Janet opened us by focusing on the Bible. And then we talked from there, we talked about God, then we talked about sin, then we talked about the incarnation, God's love uh, in flesh form with Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Rick led us in a discussion and some time focused on the Holy Spirit. So again, just, you know, some tiny little things that we've been looking into. And the reality is each and every one of those topics we could spend a bunch of weeks on because they're just monumental. They are foundational to our faith as Christians. This morning, we continue with another topic which we could explore for a very long time, and it's this topic of the church, otherwise known as the communion of the saints. And it's especially appropriate we do this here this morning because as we've already said, this is World Communion Sunday. and We are literally joining God's church worldwide and sharing in God's holy meal. There's a whole lot that could be said about the church, but I just want to start us this morning by asking you to do this. If I were to come up to you one-on-one right now and just look at you and say something like, what would you say is the church? What would your response be? Because on the surface, that can sound like a very simple question. On the surface, it is a very simple question. But the more we sort of look at it, we realize it's actually way more nuanced than I thought. It's way more complex than I thought, because if I were to ask that question among all of you, I have a feeling we would get a whole range of answers. And especially if we were to go outside of this place, if we were to talk to people on the street and go up to them and say, what would you say is the church? What would your definition be? We would get a whole long list of elements describing the church. For example, if we were to say, what is the church? I think a lot of people would say, well, it's the building. It's, it's that facility, it's that place that you go, that's the church. And certainly that's a fair conception for, or perception for a lot of people. It's the, it's the physical building. Or if we were to come up to somebody and say, what would you say is church? A whole bunch of people would say it's boring. It's that place where people go and they just sit and they're unwilling to change and they're resistant to change. It's just, it's boring is what church is. I still remember at a previous place that I had served in ministry, uh, very early on when I showed up, I had an older gentleman come up to me and he said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you, I was here before you got here, I'm going to be here with you while you're here, and I'll be here when you're gone. And you know, it was true, that actually happened with that particular individual, but we had that perception that we're just an unchanging, boring kind of thing. That is the perception of a lot of people for the church. Same time, some people think the church, oh, they just want your money. It's for their religious institution, and so all they really want is your money, and that's their first idea related to church. For many people, they view church as simply irrelevant. It's, it's now an outdated thing, something we barely use anymore, or a few people pay a little bit of attention to. Rarely do we associate church and cutting edge together. Uh, those two rarely come together, and so it's irrelevant, which again kind of ties into the boring thing. 
Unfortunately for a lot of people, the first thing they think of with church is hypocritical, two-faced. Oh, I know what the church is. It's those people who gather on Sunday mornings and they talk about being good people. Well, you should see them the rest of the week. Total hypocrites. For other people, church is associated just with being bad. I mean, that sin thing. Hell, damnation. Church makes me feel bad and makes me feel guilty because I'm not doing all the right things that I should be doing. And still for other people, church is this conglomeration of different elements. So there's music and they do some singing and they do an offering time and they do a greeting time and they have some kind of message and they have a pastor and you have to sit and listen to that message or endure it for as long as you can. And they do that for roughly an hour on Sunday mornings. Like that, that's the church thing. All of those descriptions of church, however, ironically, are not at all what God intends for what church is to be. And every single one of those things I just mentioned to you, at least for me, carry a really negative connotation. Like, I wouldn't want to be part of that. <laughs> I have no desire to be part of everything I just described to you, and yet those are the primary perceptions that people have. But it's not what God intends. So what is it that God intends? And that's what we're going to look at here this morning to understand what God really intends the communion of saints to be. So as we do this, we're going to be looking this morning in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And you might remember there's this, just a little stack of books in the New Testament because I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me or to look on your smartphone. Look up Ephesians with me as we share together. It's combined a little bit with Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, not quite in that order. Galatians, then Ephesians, then Philippians, then Colossians. That's the order. If you find any of those four books, you're going to be in the close proximity. Look up Ephesians chapter 2 with me, and here's what we hear in verses 19 to 22 that start to give us a clue about what the church is intended to be. It says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In other words, as you start to read that, the church is us. The church is the people. The church is the communion of saints. It's not all those other things I just went through. The church is meant to be us built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And when we, as God's people, live into being the church, amazing things begin to happen. And I can't go through all of them right now, but let me give you just a couple of examples of what the church starts to look like when we, as God's people, live as we're called to live. If you hear this with me in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, this is one of my favorite passages that describes the power of the church. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. They weren't bored. They weren't disinterested. They were filled with all the many wonders and miraculous signs that were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. And so I hope you get a sense. Miracles are happening. It is passionate people are engaged they're getting together as often as they can it's all the things that we as a church are increasingly trying to do they are gathered together at the temple area they are sent into people's homes multiplication is happening miracles are happening
happening. It's exciting, powerful, wonderful stuff. And then one of my absolute favorite verses is in Matthew 16, 18. The message version says it this way. This, the church, is the rock in which I will, sorry, the rock is Peter. This is the rock in which I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy, not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. So expansive with energy, not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That is a masterful, powerful, wonderful statement. Do we feel that sense of energy when we come together as the people of God apart from the Duncan energy we get in the caffeine? I'm not talking about that kind of energy. And if not, why not? The church is God's primary way of moving in our world to share in salvation today. It is God's plan A. There is no plan B. We may not execute it very well at times, but this is the primary way that God intends for God's goodness, God's love, God's salvation to happen in our world. This is it. And it's meant to be powerful and exciting and engaging and intimate and adventuresome and life-giving and all of these wonderful things. So if that's the case, and it is, why is it so often reduced to a one-hour mundane commitment a week that we then call worship as the church? I am so glad you asked, because that's what we're going to look at here together here this morning. There is a quote by Tim Keller that I want to share with you. It says this. He says, we can get back to experiencing the church as God intends when we experience supernatural community through supernatural heart surgery that works itself out in a radical new identity in the world. That is a mouthful, so let me say it one more time. He says we can get back to experience what God intends for the church when we experience supernatural community through supernatural heart surgery that works itself out in a radical new identity in the world. I want to break this down here a little bit. First of all, God's church, that is us, the communion of saints, it happens when we experience supernatural community. I want us to catch this idea first. There is a community that's not going to happen on our own. And so when church is happening the way God intends, what it means is that there's a group of people who come together in true community and they have the ability to do it with people radically different than themselves. Everywhere else in the world, groups form by people being alike and being with other people like them. The church is unique in a supernatural way and that there's this group of people who can come together and love each other even though they are radically different. And when this happens, it shares and it shows the love of God in powerful ways. So if you continue with me this morning in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, it says this. It says, in him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what Paul is laying out for us is that when we get to this place of foundation where these living stones are gathered together in a powerful way, their supernatural community is going to occur. But if you were to back up just a few verses here this morning, you're going to see that that's only the third of three metaphors, three images that Paul is giving to us. The first image that he gives, gives us to say, here's how I want you to be united, is he uses the language of us being citizens. Citizens in God's kingdom. Now you know what a citizen is. We happen to be citizens of the United States of America. And so we know in our head what that means. We have similarities and commonalities of interest around our country and what's best for our country and all of those things, and we seek to give allegiance to that. But we're not called to be citizens just in this country. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God, and not 
not heaven when we die, but heaven now. In fact, Philippians 3.20 calls us to be citizens of God's kingdom. Now let me ask you, just as a bit of a side note, which citizenship plays a greater role in our life? Being citizens of the kingdom of God or being citizens of America? And we are clearly called as followers of Jesus first to be citizens of heaven and the kingdom of God. So that's the first metaphor that Paul's giving us. But then he gives us a second image, if you were to read here this morning. And he talks about moving from citizenship. And then he says about being adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. So he's giving us the metaphor of family. Now, families oftentimes can be close. I've shared with you some about my family in the past, but like many families this year, we did the obligatory but joyful first day of school picture. And when you look at that picture for my kids, you see Zach and you see Alex and you see Josh. Now, you know, it's no secret, in our family, Josh is adopted. Let me tell you what that means in our family. Josh is 100% Lake. He is just as much Lake as Zach and as Alex. Why? Because of the miracle of adoption. In God's family, every single one of us is adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. And so Paul is reminding us that as family, we are called to live and be together. But he doesn't stop there. He goes from there and he gives us this last image of being living stones built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So look what Paul's doing here. He's increasing the intensity. He goes from being citizens where you have a social contract with people to it's more intense with the family. You are connected as the family of God. So you share the genetics, the history, the blood of God. And now he's taking it even one step further to one step of higher intensity by saying now you are living stones built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And you might wonder, how is that even more intense than being together in family? Here's why. In the Old Testament, when it talked about God's Shekinah glory showing forth from the temple, you can almost picture a stone structure of sorts of which there is God's glory and God's light bursting forth. You can almost think of that as an image of being living stones. That's what's happening here this morning. And God's saying every single one of us is meant to be a living stone with God's Shekinah glory flowing out of us, except as powerful as that would be to be one living stone by yourself. He's saying, I want every living stone to be cemented together for the glory of God and the foundation of Jesus Christ. I wish we had time this morning to walk through the scientific process of the cementing process. There's literally a chemical change that happens to bind together two different things. In God's kingdom, through the Holy Spirit, God comes and binds our hearts together in ways we never otherwise would so that God's Shekinah glory will go through each one of us as individual living stones put together for the foundation of Jesus Christ all together as one building. It's just this growing intensity that's happening, and it is powerful. And what Paul is saying is that when we can get to this level where unity is happening in this way, and there's this supernatural community where all these different people are bound together for the glory of God, whoa! Does that description match up with coming just a few times, two, three, maybe four for really good times a month for an hour to put our religious time in, get a little moral instruction, maybe be inspired, and keep on moving. It's not even close. So what has happened? How have we, how have we lost sight of being the supernatural community that God wants us to be and reduced it to this boring territorial thing that we tend to call church on Sunday mornings? I wish I could say to us, hey, everybody, if we just try a little harder to be a supernatural community, we'll be able to do it. 
hey, everyone, just, just be a little more focused, but it doesn't work that way. The only way we can be a supernatural community is for God to do a supernatural work on our hearts. So God's church, that is the communion of saints, it's going to happen when we experience God's heart surgery through the Holy Spirit to help us be a different people. Only then will we truly be able to love and be with people genuinely different than us. Listen to what it says here this morning in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. It says, He, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made the two one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the flesh, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. I want you to focus for a moment on that word hostility. It literally means hate or enmity. And what Paul is pointing out to us here this morning is that it's a natural human condition that human beings, when they're with people different from them, they don't just dislike them in a neutral way. They get to the point of hating them. If you need any proof of that, just take a quick walk through history. Every war, every form of segregation, every form of dislike that grows, it ultimately comes from a place of not just staying at dislike, but to enmity or hate of the one or the group that's different than us. We see it over and over and over. And Paul is saying that's just part of who we are as human beings. It's just what we do to each other. We're just incapable of loving somebody different from us in a neutral way. And the reason for that is because we'll take something about ourselves and we hold on to that so that when somebody who is different from myself comes along, I have to take my difference of what I value and make it of higher value than the difference of the other person so that I can feel good about myself. And Paul is saying it's going to take a radical effort, the death, the reconciliation through Christ, to wipe that out of our souls. And he's actually giving us a case study here this morning. When you look here in this passage, the issue they're dealing with, it's the dividing factor, is the issue of the law between Jews and Gentiles. Now to you and I, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but let me tell you, this meant everything to the Jews and the Gentiles. Because for the Jews, the law was the way they had distinguished their lives from the rest of the world. For the Jews, by following the law, that's how you lived into salvation in God and pleased God. The law was everything. It was literally part of their identity. And then the, the Gentiles came along and they're like, the law is not for us. Salvation comes through Christ alone, and we're going to follow Christ and get to Christ through Christ. We don't, not that the law is unimportant, but it's not nearly as important. It's not part of our identity like what you're saying, Jews. And the Jews are like, no, this is part of our identity. You cannot just discredit that. And as a result, they didn't just like the Gentiles. They were hating the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were like, why are you imposing this on us? And they didn't just dislike the Jews. They were hating the Jews. And it's into that situation that Paul has to come here this morning and say, something significant needs to happen to wipe out that hostility and that hatred in your hearts. Now, I share that, and again, maybe we can appreciate that a little bit, but we can't fully appreciate it because the law isn't such a big deal to you and I anymore. But you and I have our own things that are dividing factors among God's people. Years ago, it was the issue of racism. Churches could not see how to move forward around that issue. And it wasn't they just disagreed. They hated each other, depending on what side of the issue that you stood on. And believe me, we have our own issues here today. In fact, I'm going to name two of them for you. For many of us, it is a dividing wall. There is much hostility depending on which political stance you take and on which stance you take around the issue of sexuality. 
Both of those are dividing issues for us in our time. And the reason for that is because for those of us who follow or want to be Republican, it becomes so much a part of our identity that we don't just dislike Democrats, we hate them and vice versa. And for those of us who are straight, we look at someone else and we can't just say, you know, I disagree with your stance on sexuality. It's not just a disagreement, but if you are gay, I can't just disagree with you. I have to hate you. And we see this all the time in our society. In fact, it's even easier now because now all we have to do is put something on social media. We don't even have to look the person in the eye that we dislike or that we hate. We just throw it out there so that we can begin to tear them apart. And the reason for that is because the factors that we hold on to, whether we're Republican or Democrat, gay or straight, we make those a part of our identity that begins to take our shift and our focus off of where our true identity comes. So that when a neutral factor becomes an identity factor, there we find a problem. There we find division. There we find hostility. Think about it this way for just a moment. Let's say that you are a hardworking person. And let's say that you value hard work. It's one thing to say, I'm a hard worker, and if you meet somebody who's lazy, you might be annoyed by them, but you know, they're lazy. But we can't do that. Those of us who are hardworking, it becomes something we value, we feel proud, prideful of ourselves, we feel good about ourselves, and therefore, if you're a lazy person, it's not just that we disagree, it's you're not as good as me. You're not as valuable as me. And once we take that step, we've taken our first step towards devaluing and dehumanizing them. So no longer can we say something like, you know, I believe the role of the government is to have less of a role in individuals' lives, and I disagree with those who think it should have more of a role. Instead, what we're starting to do is say, I disagree, and oh, by the way, you're not quite as valuable as me because you're not valuing what I value. In fact, God doesn't love you as much God lo as God loves me. We do the same thing around sexuality. And so for those of us who are straight, we look and we say, this is my understanding, this is my identity, but we no longer seem to have the ability to say, for those of us who see it differently or don't believe in the traditional stance of marriage, and say, I disagree with you on this issue. It moves from disagreement to, you're not following the way I believe and live, God would want us to, and therefore God doesn't love you as much as me. Can I be really clear, church? God loves Republicans, Democrats, gay, straight, black, white, equally. 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 Can I tell you that? I'm not asking us this morning to change our convictions. I'm asking us to change our heart posture. Hear the difference in the two. I'm not asking us to change our heart conviction. I'm asking us to change our heart posture. Listen what Paul says in verses 14 through 15 and 16. Jesus himself is our peace. He's made the two one and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He's abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. In one body, he's reconciled both of them to God through the cross. The word reconcile here literally means God slew the hate. God is slaying the hate. That which divides us, God is slaying it and getting rid of it. A, 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 sorry, I got too many thoughts in my head this morning. A colleague that I really respect said this. said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I love that idea and I love that concept. That's exactly right. Like no matter where we are, no matter what stance, 
Before the cross, every single one of us is of equal value. Every single one of us is equally loved. Every single one. And when a group of people can come together and recognize that and practice that with each other, the world will start to take notice. Again, we're not betraying our convictions. We are living into a different heart posture. The early Christians, if you need proof of this, go back in church history. And this is what you'll find among the early church Christians and why the church grew so much. They loved their enemies. So when wars were going on, it was the Christians who would put their lives on the line and literally go out into the battlefield and drag off their enemies and try to nurse them back to health. They weren't abandoning their convictions. They were living into their convictions. When the plagues were going on, it was the Christians who stayed the longest at the risk of their own life and getting sick to love on those who were different than them, to love on their enemies and try to nurse them back to health instead of abandoning them. And when the world saw that kind of community, that supernatural community, they took notice and God began to move in powerful ways and the kingdom began to grow. You can think of it a little bit like this. We focus so much on trying to be on the same page that we get so focused on our page that in the process we miss the entire book. So we encourage each other, you know what, I need to get on the same page. And this is my focus. I'm just going to look at this one page. And what ends up happening is we'll look at this one page so much that now we're like, what's he doing? That's one, he's ripping that out. And in the process, we forget about the book. And what I'm asking us to do this morning is to view each page, each life in light of the cross instead of missing out. And again, we'll bring healing to the book later, all right? It's okay on that. But here's what we do. We say, I'm so focused on me and my issue and my page that I'm no longer looking here. And eventually, with enough time and enough pages, we can actually get it entirely covered up that we barely even see the cross anymore. And what Paul is doing here this morning is saying, no, every single one of you is on equal footing. The ground is level here. There's not an elevation or a hierarchy. <laughs> Only through Christ and his work on the cross can we value each other in that way. And the reason that happens is because we recognize that from and on the cross, we get what Jesus deserved. And on the cross, Jesus got what we deserved. And when that sinks in, we now have an identity that's received instead of achieved. And what that means is we don't have to change our conviction, but it does mean we change our heart posture and how we love those different than us. And when this happens, church, the result is a people who have had the dividing wall of hostility removed, which will result in unity. And when that happens, powerful things begin to flourish. Why do you think Paul spends so much time on this issue of unity? Because he knows that the church is one of the few, if only, places where when unity occurs and it's demonstrated in the world, the rest of the world will sit up and take notice because nobody else does this. Nobody else has the ability to look at their enemy in the eye and say, I love you still. Nobody else has the ability to say, I look at you, somebody is totally different than me with a totally different identity than me, and I love you still. And when we can do that, without changing our convictions, but with a different heart posture, God moves. 
Some of you know Kathy Miller here at First Church. Love Kathy. She's great. She helps us in so many ways. She's connected with our kids. She helps in the office. She works with prayer. She's so great in so many ways. But if you talk to Kathy more than 0.8 seconds, you learn that she is a fanatical Clemson Tiger fan. Now, for me, as a Duke fan for basketball and a Penn State Nittany Lion fan for football, that's an issue. It's not my favorite thing. In fact, I was talking to Kathy a couple weeks ago, and she was hilarious. You would have thought she was one of the coaches on Clemson's football team. They have, I believe, a a freshman quarterback named Trevor. And Trevor had had a good game as a freshman. And I was talking to Kathy after that game, and she literally was like, man, it was so good to see Trevor. Trevor, welcome to the family. You did so well. I mean, this was literally her language. I mean, she just loves the Clemson Tigers. So we'll disagree about some of those things. But if you see Kathy and I for more than just a few minutes, chances are we're going to end up laughing and talking about something, and chances are also that by the end of that conversation, I'll give her a hug or she'll give me one. I just thank her for the amazing work that she's doing here. And if you were to see me from a distance or see Kathy from a distance, you might almost be like, gosh, it looks like a long-lost brother and sister reconnecting, because actually, I don't know Kathy super well. But you know what the reality is? She is my long-lost sister in Christ. And you, we, our long-lost brothers and sisters in Christ. And when that bond is there, the dividing wall of hostility is removed, and God can be unleashed among God's people. I want to be a part of that kind of church. This is the church that I'm giving my life to, and I'm inviting you to be that kind of church as well. Because when we start to do that, church will move from being boring to a people filled with awe that is contagious, that shows something different to the world. It will move us from being irrelevant, outdated, to being the greatest force of good and love and grace on this side of heaven that we can show God's mercy and God's love through all kinds of ways to bring healing and wholeness to those who are sick and broken. There can't be anything more relevant. It will move us from being a building to being a people in deep connection with each other that laugh and cry and walk with each other in their greatest times of joy and struggle. There will be no more us and them of being gathered and sent, but we come together to be the people of God. We will no longer be tame, but we will be unleashed. We'll no longer be proper. We'll be powerful in the Holy Spirit. And heaven will no longer be a far distance away. It'll be up close and personal. That's the church I long for. And that's the church that God invites us into. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Just indulge me for just a moment. Grab the hand of somebody close to you, whether you know them or not, whether they're in front of you, behind you, beside you. Please just grab their hand for just a second. And as you're holding their hand in this moment, literally even give it an extra squeeze. And here's what I want you to realize, church. These hands that you're holding, they're not just your fellow citizens. They're not even just your family. They are living stones cemented on the foundation of Jesus Christ that God's Shekinah glory might shine through. And cemented together, we might be the church of Jesus Christ, 
for the day and the age in which we live filled with all the power and miracle and glory and adventure and intimacy and power that God intends. May we be this one united church in Christ. Amen.